Welcome to The Collective Tap, conversations about water. I'm your host, Taylor Bennett. Our first season is titled The Spigot. It focuses on the water that comes into our homes and the ways we use it. Join us as our field host, Taz Walters and Devin Dabney, talk with experts about what exactly is in our water, the real cost of a green lawn, how water-related issues impact our health, and the affordability of this basic resource. In this episode, we talk with Curran Olson from Citizens Action Coalition, Dan Considine with Citizens Energy Group, and Letitia Carpenter with the U.S. Water Alliance. Have you noticed that your water bill has been going up? If so, you're not alone, and rate increases are likely to continue in some places. While this may be unwelcome news, for some people, it can lead to serious financial strain. Join us as we discuss the cost of delivering safe water, the history of inequity in the system, and how utility companies are planning for the future. Taz and Devin first speak with Curran Olson, Executive Director of the Citizens Action Coalition in Indianapolis. We discuss his efforts to make water more affordable and how the need for infrastructure improvements is impacting the cost of water service. I'm Kerwin Olson, the Executive Director at the Citizens Action Coalition of Indiana. We are a statewide consumer and environmental uh, advocacy organization, been around since 1974. What are water rights, and in Indiana, do we have a right to affordable access to water? Well, I would say no, because Citizens Action Coalition's focus has generally been on the affordability for households. And uh, we have a long way to go in Indiana with respect to creating affordable utility bills, especially around water, for all Hoosier consumers. What makes the water so inaccessible for people? Why are utilities operating in the way that they are? Well, I think there's many answers to that question. Number one, we have an extraordinary need uh, when it comes to our infrastructure, not only in Indiana, uh, but across the country. You know, we had the report done by the Finance Authority and the Indiana General Assembly that showed we have an immediate need in the state of Indiana for an excess of $2 billion in investment, as well as close to a billion dollars on an ongoing basis. And that is largely the result of decrease in federal funding support for water systems. I was on a panel with the Chamber of Commerce, and they have a great slide that shows water expenditures from the federal government over time. And pre-1980, 50 to 60% of infrastructure money spent on water systems came from the federal government federal support. Today, that number is less than 10%. There's been a steady decline in federal support for water and wastewater infrastructure across the country since 1980. Um, and that has put a real, a real drag on local water utilities and their ability to access revenues to upkeep their infrastructure. That's why we've been hearing about infrastructure for decades and decades and decades. And all too often, we ignore the infrastructure that's under the ground. We focus on roads, we focus on bridges, and we forget about the extraordinary need that exists to update and build out and maintain our water and wastewater systems. How do you think when we finally decide to fix all this that it's going to affect accessibility even more? Well, it's already having an extraordinary impact on rates. If you look at the trend in water bills across the country. We've seen, uh, on average, an increase of about 50% in water bills across the country, and that's because we are now using ratepayers really in the role of taxpayers. In my own experience, I had a water bill in the 80s and 90s 
five, six, seven dollars. It was a complete afterthought. Mm -hmm. You know, those bills today for a lot of customers are 60, 70, 80, 90 dollars. We're seeing water rates increase uh, uh, far in excess of other of other energy utilities and other services, far outpacing growth, and uh, it's real problematic. So we really need to get serious about looking at end users, looking at utility bills, and ensuring that that folks have the access that we need. Can we talk for a minute about what affordability actually means? Well, that's something CAC has been harping on for a long time. You, you really have to define what is affordable for the end user based on some sort of metric. And the only way to really do that is to look at a percentage of income. And we know, with respect to water, that the EPA defines affordability as 4.5% of income for both water and wastewater. The USDA defines affordability a little lower as 3.5% of income on water and wastewater service. So we really need to make sure that bills for end users, for, for consumers, fall within those guidelines so that it's affordable for everybody. Because in Indiana, we tend to define affordability uh, in two ways. One, in, in terms of the utility and their ability to afford uh, to make those investments and be made whole. But we also tend to look at affordability in Indiana uh, through the eyes of economic development. Do we have utility rates, including water, that are attractive to manufacturers and other corporations that want to locate in Indiana so that their products can be competitive, uh, quote unquote. Those are all important facets, but we tend to ignore households, low income customers, and their ability to afford those products and services. What are you doing to help that? Are there programs that utilities have? What's available? Well, there's not much out there, but we noticed at Citizens Action Coalition Oh, seven or eight years ago, water, wastewater wasn't something we engaged with a whole lot because we have over 13, 1400 combined water, wastewater utilities in the state of Indiana. I think we have 545 different water utilities in the state of Indiana. And CAC does a lot of our work with the Regulatory Commission. Most of those utilities are not regulated by the IURC. So in order to engage with all those utilities, not only do you have 500 plus utilities, you also have 500 plus different governing boards that oversee those utilities, whether it's a conservancy district or a city council or a utility board. So we made a very deliberate attempt at CAC to get engaged at the policy level um, at the Indiana State House because we had largely ignored water, wastewater utilities because rates were cheap, rates were affordable, it wasn't a huge concern. So we've worked with the water utilities and with leadership at the General Assembly. We got some good policy in place, number one, recognizing that affordable utility services is essential for everybody. The fight just to get a little sentence, a little preamble in a bill was extraordinary to get that word affordable into state law. Then we followed that up the next year working with uh, both Citizens Energy Group as well as Indiana American Water to get language into state law that authorizes low-income assistance programs because many people will challenge low-income assistance programs uh, either as socialism or subsidies or those type of things. And when you get into a regulatory environment, then that's where things get a little wonky and complicated, but then when you are providing incentives or subsidies to one rate class, then they, the lawyers of certain special interests will say those are discriminatory rates. So we had to get into state law that number one, if a utility company wants to offer low-income assistance programs, they may. We would have liked a shall, but we got they may 
and that those rates, the commission may approve those rates, and that those rates were considered non-discriminatory. We did talk to Citizens Energy Group, and one of the things they talked about was infrastructure as one of the reasons why rates go up so much and how there is such a need for it. And it's interesting, going back to what you said about the lack of federal funding, like the infrastructure has to be built and paid for. Someone has to pay for it. If they don't have that federal funding, they have to turn somewhere to get that funding. And so then it just makes it fall back onto people who are the most vulnerable. Many people can afford rate increases. Yeah. They won't see a three, four, five dollar you know, increase in their bills. They won't notice it. But we need to do everything we can to insulate those that can't afford those services um, from realizing those, those pressures. We do it. Uh, we subsidize industrial manufacturer use, users with lower rates. We subsidize cities uh, for things like street lights and other things under the guise of public safety and the public good. And at CAC, we absolutely believe that it's an issue of public safety and public good to ensure that everybody has continuous and uninterrupted access to these essential services. And I'm sure there's probably people who are having a strong reaction to that this conversation. So I think it's just like something that everybody has to sit with and like think about. Well, we do it to a certain extent with housing. We have affordable housing in Section 8. We do it with food, with the SNAP program. We do it uh, with public education and free and reduced lunch. Mm -hmm. uh, we do it with healthcare, with Medicare, with Medicaid, with HIP 2.0 here in Indiana. So we, rec we at least try. We have issues with some of the ways in which you do that, but at least we recognize those things. But yet with utilities and, and water, we fail to recognize that, mm -hmm. that those are essential services and that these are something that people need, and we, we tend to put taxpayers on a pedestal and sort of throw ratepayers to the wolf and say, good luck. Yeah. And we can, we can do better than that. You said something earlier about how the EPA defines affordability, you know, as a percentage, and yet rates are still going up. Is there nothing keeping Indiana beholden to that definition of affordability? That is not a legal standard, if you will, that must be complied with. And the way they do it in Indiana is, you know, the Indiana Finance Authority now is able to provide low interest loans, if not grants, to water utilities. As I said, Indiana's done a, done a good job of trying to put in place uh, low cost financing for struggling utilities. But the way in which they define affordability is they look at area median income and look at rates and look at the amount they need to collect and they set a bar of, uh, it, I think it's $75. Mm -hmm. If the average bill is $75 a month, then that's affordable, looking at it from a, from a median perspective of the area. And $75 means a lot more uh, to somebody on disability, to somebody making $15,000, $20,000 a year than it does to somebody else. So that's why we, 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 we encourage to look at it uh, from the perspective of percentage of income or some sort of tiered discount based on you know, customers economic situation, which is generally defined by poverty level. You know, zero to 50% of poverty, 51 to 99, have different tiered discount programs. But we can do better than just sort of looking at area median income and saying, oh, well, and how does that work for, say, folks in places like a Carmel or a Zionsville, where the income is incredibly high, yet if you look at Carmel, I was looking through it the other day, you look at Carmel schools, for example, and 12% of Carmel school students are on free and reduced lunch but the area median income would be much higher for those folks 
And so you would have, you know, one in 10 in your population suffering from unaffordable rates because of the metrics that they use to define affordability. That was something else I was thinking about too, and I'm glad you said that, is that the median income doesn't really mean anything. I mean, you could have a billionaire move into a, a small town and it's like, well, the average median income is this. Yeah, they always make that comparison of, well, if Elon Musk walked in the room right now, right. median income just went up. It's really not as difficult as the utilities make it out to be because utilities will complain about administrative burden, qualifying households, right. and what a chore that is. So one of the things CAC and other consumer advocates do is we look for a single point of entry, if you will. If you are if you are qualified for free or reduced lunch, if you are qualified for HIP, if you are qualified for SNAP, you get a letter from those agencies. Some of them send one every month that say you are qualified for HIP 2.0. That sort of certification should be enough to go to your utility and say, I'm qualified for HIP, I should qualify for your low income program, we should have something in place. It's really not as hard as a lot of folks wanna make it out to be because of their sort of ideological resistance to the idea. Is there anything you would like to add that we haven't touched on? There's two issues I think that are important in this conversation. Number one is the lack of any investment whatsoever in efficiency, mm -hmm. in terms of reducing consumption by end users, reducing consumption, we'll reduce bills for customers. So we really need to get serious about looking at water efficiency programs funded by utilities, especially things like toilet replacement programs put in place that reduces household usage of water 10 to 15,000 gallons a year just by replacing outdated toilets. The cost of wastewater treatment plants and other things, and one of the things Indiana American is doing is they're starting to, this is the nexus between energy and utilities, if you will. One of the things water and wastewater utilities are starting to do is, is power their wastewater facilities with solar because they use tremendous amounts of energy. That energy use, the cost of that is passed on to customers. So if we can incorporate sustainable energy on-site generation that powers those wastewater treatment plants, we'll reduce costs uh, to customers as well. So efficiency, energy use, those are all important pieces of, of the puzzle with respect to the affordability of water for end users. And we, we haven't had that conversation in Indiana at all. Uh, sometimes you gotta pick your battles, but we have so many battles going on right now that that nexus between energy, climate, water use, water distribution, it, it's, all, it's all a part of it. These are the type of things that we should be talking about because these investments not only lift up people's quality of life, create jobs, create economic development, create sustainable jobs that can't be outsourced, but who knows, we might save the planet in the meantime. So let's get serious about a real conversation about all of these issues because they're all, they all intersect. Next, Dan Considine, manager of corporate communications for Citizens Energy Group, talks with Taz and Devin about utility rates, working with those who can't afford their service, and why we can't take water for granted. I'm Dan Considine, and I'm manager of corporate communications for Citizens Energy Group. I was like looking, doing some, you know, internet research on CEG, and I saw that it's a public charitable trust. We're the only utility that we're aware of anywhere that's operated under what's called the public charitable trust. We were founded in 1887, and at the time we were a natural gas company. At the time, uh, Standard Oil of New Jersey was buying natural gas, a brand new industry. They were buying gas utilities all over the country, buying them out. And the city leaders here did not want to, they had a choice. 
Uh, they didn't want to sell to a, an out-of-state company. They didn't want to be taken over. They also didn't want to have the utility run by the city government. Okay, so they came up with this compromise idea called the Public Charitable Trust. In, in essence, all the trust, basically what the trust is, it's like setting up a trust for a family member. We are actually a department of the, the city of Indianapolis, but the city council, the mayor's office, has no direct control over the operation of the utility. All the assets of the utility have been placed in a trust, just like you would place them in the trust for like a child or a, a family member. Under our structure, our water and gas utility and our wastewater utility all have to be run only for the benefit of the uh, beneficiaries, which are the customers and the communities we serve. There's no profit margin. You know, our, our, our rates are designed to recover our costs. We don't have shareholders or stockholders, and that's essentially the trust. We really operate for the benefit of the people that we serve. Who decides how much it costs to have water? Our rates, as I said earlier, our rates on all our utilities, first and foremost, have to cover our operating costs. So we have to cover the cost of paying our people, uh, maintaining the utilities, investing in those utilities. In other words, not, not just fixing short-term problems, but making investments like the Dig Indy system. All those things go into rates. Our rates are regulated by the Indiana Utility Regulatory Commission. So that is a, you know, a judicial process. So when we, we go in for something called a rate case, it's actually a court, like a court proceeding, and we have to present testimony or evidence that, to the commission to justify a change or a rate increase. And uh, the commission represents the customer, as well as there's another agency called the Indiana uh, utility consumer counselor, and they also represent the customer. So it is an adversarial proceeding, and then the commission issues a ruling as far as whether we're granted a rate, rate increase. So what happens when somebody can't pay? Yeah, well, let me just talk in general about affordability, because it's a big issue for us, um, especially since we acquired not only the water utility, but also the wastewater utility. So our customers, at least in Marion County, get a combined bill. And it has, for most customers, it has natural gas, water, and wastewater, or sewer service. Our customers outside Marion County, it's pretty much, it's just water service they're getting from us. Our water bills and our wastewater bills in particular have gone up significantly over the past 10 years. And that is primarily because of infrastructure investments that we've needed to make. Uh, some of it is operating costs. Customers really don't differentiate that much and look at the line item on their bill. They look at that bottom line. And when you look at the bottom line, the biggest contributor or the biggest issue we have with affordability has been from our wastewater utility. We, ha we are under a consent decree from US EPA and the Justice Department to build this dig Indy tunnel system that will be completed in um, 2025. That's a two and a half, two point $4 billion investment. That has approximately tripled wastewater bills since 2011. And it's really the cost of that. And not all the costs of Dig Indy have gone into rates yet, because most of the money has been borrowed over 30-year municipal bonds. So those costs will be managed over time. You couldn't put it in all at once. There would be a, a much bigger shock to the system. And on the water side, we've had um, you know, when the system was acquired in 
2011, the water utility here was a troubled utility financially. It was heavily leveraged with a lot of debt. Uh, it needed it, the system needed investments. So we've made a lot of investments in uh, water mains to improve the reliability of the system, to reduce loss of water. Uh, we've made investments like the Citizens Reservoir, the new reservoir in the quarry up in, um, in Hamilton County. Uh, and all of those things have impacted rates. Now, water rates here haven't increased anywhere near as high as wastewater rates are. But again, it's impacting most of our customers. As to your question about what do we do if customers can't pay, we've been able to develop some programs, some assistance programs. On the water side, however, we've been able to uh, come up with our program for the wastewater customers, and it also contributes to water conservation it's called LICAP, or Low Income Assistance Program. And that program is providing direct assistance to customers to, to lower their bills. And if you qualify for the state energy assistance, the state and federal assistance, you qualify for the water assistance. So we're able to provide some assistance to water customers. And there's a component of that that can provide them funding to do things like install low-flow toilets in their home uh, and other uh, things that can lower their their water use, which helps lower their bill. Uh, so that's kind of a new area for us. Uh, there's also been some federal funding for additional federal assistance for water bills um, that the state manages, like the LIHE program. Hopefully that program is continued. And, and of course, the other thing we have to do is we just have to do everything we can every day to focus on keeping our operating costs down because those all get passed on to the customers. It's a significant issue because as you all know, you. You can't live in a house without water. Did you see any impacts due to the COVID-19 pandemic with people not being able to afford to keep their water on? Go back to spring of 2020 when the pandemic started. We were actually the first utility in the state. It was about a week to 10 days prior to the governor taking action, but we came out, we were the first water utility in the state that said, we're not gonna disconnect any water services we're putting a moratorium on water disconnections. And we actually also said that we would go back and reconnect customers who had been recently disconnected. And I think we went back to January. Water's always a necessity, but it's certainly a, even magnified during a pandemic when you have to, you literally have to wash your hands to, to keep yourself safe. A lot of customers got behind on their bill, so there was a big backlog. We knew that would occur, so we did everything we could to provide extra assistance, uh, the new federal assistance, for example. One of the things we do when a customer falls behind, regardless of what bill it is, gas, water, or wastewater, is we do what's called payment arrangements. We'll allow a customer to catch up on a past due bill over a period of time. Normally, and under normal uh, conditions, that can be three to six months. So they'll pay a little extra to catch up on that past due bill, remain connected. When the pandemic hit, we said, look, we're gonna be more flexible. We're gonna allow customers one year payment arrangements so they can catch up over a much longer period of time. We also have a private foundation we operate called Warm Heart, Warm Home. That also helps fill some gaps um, where we can just provide grant assistance to customers to help them on those bills. It seems like you're in this odd kind of conundrum where you operate for the public good and like believe that water is a right that everybody should have, but then at the same time you have to charge people for that water. We've run into it recently, uh, you've probably seen it in the news about some apartment complexes where they just have stopped paying their bill for like over a year. 
you know, you reach a, you can't let that go on forever because utility like ours, um, you know, there's no shareholders to pay for that or money reserves somewhere set aside. Ultimately, if that if that money winds up in a write-off, bad debt is, is what our accountants call it. That has to be that cost has to be spread out among the remaining customer base. And again, that speaks to affordability. Like Taz said, it's interesting because you have to occupy this space of we understand that we have an essential thing that people need, but also it costs money to bring them that thing and to treat it. Yeah, I mean, on the water side, it's fascinating. I'll go on, like, radio call-in shows sometimes, mm -hmm. which are the most fun a, a, PR, <laughs> a PR person can have. And you hear people will literally call in and say, water should be free. They don't say that about gas or electric because there's an awareness, especially with gas, that you got to know what you're doing with natural gas, just like you do with water. But people just sort of take it for granted that it falls from the sky, it should be free. And, and what I've told people is I've spent most of my career in the gas industry. And natural gas people, from the moment they get out of bed to go to work, safety is the first thing on their mind. I think it's even more so with water folks. They have to get it right every day. They can't just be close. Yeah. They have to be exactly right from a a safety standpoint. And that's the part that people take for granted, that that does cost money to make sure that water doesn't just taste good, but doesn't make you sick. Letitia Carpenter is a senior program manager with the U.S. Water Alliance. She leads the Alliance's Equitable Water Future initiatives. To close out this episode, Letitia talks with Taz and Devin about how inequities became built into the water system, why they continue to impact communities, and how the U.S. Water Alliance is working with utility companies to produce better outcomes. Letitia Carpenter, I'm a senior program manager at the U.S. Water Alliance. What does the U.S. Water Alliance do? The U.S. Water Alliance is a national nonprofit um, working to advance the One Water Movement. So thinking about integrated approaches to um, our water and wastewater management systems with the ultimate goal of creating a more equitable, sustainable, and inclusive water sector and water management practices and policies. And so we do that from several different arms um, or several different angles. Um, we work in water policy, we work on climate adaptation and climate action. Um, we work in the arts and culture realm, and we also work in water equity, which is what I get to do um, day to day. Can you define what water equity is for us? The first thing that we need to remember when we're talking about water equity is that equity is not equality. Um, and so um, when we think about equality, that's providing the same service to everyone. Equity allows us to understand that not everyone is not starting from the same spot. And so there are different types of resources that need to be provided to different types of folks, different types of communities in order to allow them to have the same um equitable outcomes and the same positive life outcomes as folks who might start from a different spot. And so then we're going beyond equality and we're even going beyond just equity and we're trying to make it make sense for the water sector and we're thinking about water equity. We define water equity in three different pillars. And so in pillar one, we think about ensuring all people have access to clean, safe, affordable water services. In pillar two, 
We see water equity being actualized if we are maximizing the community and economic benefits of water infrastructure investment. And for pillar three, we are uh, actualizing water equity if we are able to foster community resilience in the face of a changing climate. And so when we think about going, just go back for a second, we're thinking about pillar one, access and affordability. It is a fact that over 2 million Americans live without access to clean water. And even more millions have access to water that doesn't meet EPA standards or threatened by polluted water and sewer sources. And studies show that many of these communities are made up of the most historically marginalized. And this leaves these communities especially vulnerable during times of crisis, like the COVID-19 pandemic, where we learned that having access to water literally saved lives. And then if we go deeper in pillar two, um, thinking about the community and economic benefit of water infrastructure, across the country, utilities and municipalities are investing billions of dollars a year to address America's infrastructure crisis and bring our systems to a state of good repair. And as utilities undertake these capital projects, they can advance water equity at every stage of the process by embedding equitable practices into the ways that they spend their dollars, who they hire, is it your local community or is it not, and the goals that they set for things like the amount of um, minority-owned businesses or small businesses or women-owned businesses or doing things like removing the box on an application that asks folks to check whether or not they've been formally incarcerated so that you create a new pipeline of opportunity for folks who are re-entering our non-carceral system. Then if we go a little deeper on pillar three around fostering community resilience, um, water-related climate impacts disproportionately impact historically marginalized communities. Um, and we've done several studies at the U.S. Water Alliance to, to show that um, in our climate program. And so therefore it's, it's imperative really that as we continue to plan for how we will combat the growing climate crisis, we implement mechanisms to advance resiliency in a way that allows those most impacted by the changing climate to be involved in the planning, funding, and project delivery of climate-related work. What are some of the things that exist right now that are keeping us from an equitable water accessibility situation? When I am introducing folks in the Water Equity Network, which is the program I run, to the Alliance and to water equity, I generally start by thinking, um, setting some foundational framing around where we are right now. And that can help me answer your question by thinking about kind of the business as usual practices of the water sector um, tend to be things like no news is good news. Compliance is is what we're targeting and, and anything beyond that is extra and it's nice, but Really, what we're worried about is meeting our regulations from the federal government and continuing to be able to supply water. And so that mindset really can keep our sector, I think, personally, can keep our sector in a just moving to move and not necessarily moving with the intention of change um, and with the intent or foresight for creating a different type of future. So um, we've gotten as a sector pretty good at what we do. <laughs> um, and so wanting to continue to do 
do that is the easier path. Historically, the folks who have been leading the water sector have looked the same. Um, Majority of the water sector is male. Uh, Overwhelming majority of the water sector is male. Overwhelming majority of the water sector is white. Um, And even where there are people of color engaged in water sector jobs, they tend to be on the more entry-level positions. There's very few leaders in our sector that are leaders of color. Luckily, that's starting to shift and change. No, but that's great, though, because you're kind of describing this inertia. Things are moving the way they're moving. We don't want to stop the bus. You know, we don't want to rock the boat or do anything crazy. And it just has lots of consequences. So thank you for that. I'm curious to talk more about this idea of how the people in charge, how their identities impact the policies that are being enacted. And I think it's also important to like talk about what communities have been most impacted historically and currently by issues of access? And are they the same or different as the people who are making those policies? The water sector is not um, in a vacuum. It doesn't exist alone. Um, and so it is impacted and informed by all of the, the systems that built this country and that continue to build this country. And so if we think back to things like redlining um, or other discriminatory and very obviously, in my opinion, racist practices, Um, we can see that racism was actually written and embedded into the laws, policies, and practices of this country. Um, And those racist policies and practices at the larger level then impact the different sectors that operate within that governance structure. There's examples that we share with our water equity network from some of our water equity network cities um, where we can pull up language directly from policies in um, one of our cities that says we must fix the integration problem and direct black people to the low lying and undesirable areas of this city. And that was back in, you know, early or mid 1900s during the Fair Housing Act and all that redlining. That legacy continues today. These things didn't just emerge and somehow black and brown communities found themselves being more impacted. It was very intentionally written into our laws and policies and therefore shows up just as intentionally. And if we aren't intentional about correcting them, we aren't intentional about promoting equity instead of inequity, we're gonna continue we're gonna find ourselves in the same places over and over. When we're thinking about who is leading the water sector and who's in the room, the beauty of diversity, equity and inclusion, which have become buzzwords but do have real meaning. The beauty of them is that you bring different perspectives into a room and so new ideas can be created that way. If you have the same folks and same type of folks with the same lived experience, their imagination is going to be similar because of their lived experience is so similar versus bringing folks into a room who have just maybe polar opposite lived experiences. They dream differently. They think differently. They imagine differently. And so bringing those together then creates a third different type of thing. So In 2017, the U.S. Water Alliance conducted a research study to understand how these inequities came to be in the water sector and who was most impacted by them. And so through that study, we found that water stressors impact historically marginalized communities the most. In the U.S., access to opportunity, health, and certain um, public sector services is deeply tied to race and place. 
Where you live determines what schools you can attend, what job opportunities you will have, how healthy you will be, whether you will be targeted by the criminal justice system, and how long you will live. And while income, age, immigration status are often also at play in determining these outcomes, we found that race was the single most significant predictive factor as to whether an individual would have access to water services. The idea of inertia mm-hmm. is just so upsetting <laughs> when you understand why these policies were put in place in the first place. It's easier to stay that way. Local water systems, they aren't supported um, in the way that they could be to do better. There's been historical decline in investment from the federal government since the 1970s. There's only so much like local water utilities can do without the money to be able to to do something new or do something different. Because right now they're funded by ratepayers, And as we know, there's so many challenges and issues with relying on that single source of income. I'm not glad to hear you say that. I appreciate it because you just said something that we also heard this morning about the, the drastic change in how utilities are funded and how all of the weight goes on to the people who are paying for it. And then, of course, people in worse financial situations are going to feel that more. On that note, I'm curious to hear um, like how you respond to a certain thing. So the person we talked to this morning works a lot with trying to make rates affordable for people. And one of the things that he comes up against a lot is this idea that making something more affordable for people who can't afford it is socialism, that it's discriminatory to give somebody this advantage and not give everyone else that advantage. What do you say to people that think that that is like unfair to do? When I'm thinking about this tension between providing services Um, water services at an affordable rate to those who need it being something seen as like a socialist construct or or something that is beyond what we do in this country. I, I like to try to pull folks back to remembering that no one should be denied water due to an inability to pay. That's where the U.S. Water Alliance sits um, as an organization. That's where I sit as an individual. And so what can we do as a sector to ensure that that no longer has to happen so that we can avoid this conversation um, that you are bringing up and say, well, regardless of where you sit politically, we as an or as an organization believe that no one should be denied water due to an inability to pay. So what do we need to do to actualize that? Can you talk a little bit about the ways that you have tackled water equity and access for people? First thing that comes to mind is the nine city pilot program that we've been working on for the last 18 months. For the last 18 months, we've been facilitating what we're calling a preventing water shutoffs for low income families pilot project. It is under our Recovering Stronger initiative, which explores the ways in which the water sector can recover stronger than before and use this moment as an opportunity to make meaningful shifts in the way that we manage water, the way we think about affordability. And so in the pilot, we're actively partnering with nine cities to explore alternatives to shutoffs and how utilities can work to avoid punitive strategies 
like shutoffs or like liens or late fees even. Utilities in these nine cities have partnered with local community organizations that provide direct service to um, low-income residents in their communities. These organizations have strong relationships and are trusted by their community partners to provide real support. And so they're working together uh, to explore strategies um, to address this issue. And so because, as I was mentioning earlier, this is such a tenuous topic can be, it's new to even imagine that we wouldn't do shutoffs. Um, and so right now we're still in the exploring strategies and opportunities phase. And by the end of the summer, we'll be coming out with a report and fact sheets on what folks have been doing and what we see the future being. It's so interesting to talk with you and hear these things. I feel like as we've been learning about our water systems, we zoomed way in. And like, as we learn more, it's like we're backing up and backing up and backing up and realizing, like you said earlier, like this isn't in a vacuum. So when you're tackling like water access, like you also have to tackle debt, income inequality, racism, all of these bigger issues that are so intertwined with everything in our country. Part of this pilot project, we've learned so much as an organization about how to frame and and discuss and think about a holistic person when we're thinking about water affordability. Folks are not, this isn't their only bill. <laughs> this isn't their only struggle. Most, a lot of times as someone who grew up having their water shut off occasionally because we could not afford our bill, I understand that that wasn't the only bill that we didn't pay that month. Um, and so when we are having these conversations, just like you were saying, Taz, we have to understand and back up a little bit and, and remember that they're holistic people and they're dealing with complex problems. So they might be picking between paying their water bill and pay, affording their medicine that month. We need to understand that in order to understand why they didn't pay their bill so that when we're thinking about these customers, we're not thinking of them as delinquent ratepayers, but we're thinking of them as real people in real situations doing their best. Thank you for sharing your background. I also just want to share my personal background. I grew up in poverty as well. My family was very poor. We were housing insecure. We were food insecure. I've been homeless twice in my life. We went to a lot of food pantries. I never had water shut off. I'm white for those of you who can't see. <laughs> water access was not something that I, as a child, dealt with, even at the same time as I was dealing with these other issues. Yeah, we found in, in some of the cities that we've been working with in this pilot project, we found that even some of the utilities run by folks who are very intentional, who understand the importance of equity, may have not had the chance before the COVID-19 pandemic, when utilities were in financial crisis, to sit and look at the practices they were using for shutoffs. And so many of them found that they were starting when their operators walked out the door that morning, they were starting to shut off folks in black and brown neighborhoods. And so that's where they started. That's where they went first. And so even though there may be a low income white neighborhood adjacent, they didn't get shut off that day because they first started in black and brown neighborhoods. And there's reasons why. But one of the reasons is you didn't you weren't intentional about planning to not you didn't set out to do anything different, like we said at the beginning. So you did the same thing over and over because you didn't try to change. So I guess I just want to make sure that if there's anything specific that you'd like to say to people while, you know, you have the floor. I think I'll pick up on some of the threads that we were talking about a second ago and just like 
stepping back and thinking of not only people and customers as a holistic people, but also the water sector and it's the situation that it sits within. And just being really honest that providing reliable water and wastewater services is really expensive. And much of the country's water infrastructure needs replacement due to age, due to population shifts, due to climate change. But because of declining state and federal funding, like we were saying, customer rates have become the primary source of utility revenue. And at the same time, income inequality and poverty are also on the rise. And many families are struggling with basic expenses. And so it's important for us to understand that as water rates rise to cover the growing cost of operations, maintenance, capital investment, they become unaffordable for low-income households. There is a shift coming because of the large-scale investment that has happened at the federal level through the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. Um, And so we're seeing a glimmer of hope (laughs) at the federal level um, with more talk about investing in water, but also um, the federal government is gonna start piloting a low-income water assistance program similar to the low-income heat affordability. That's never existed before at the federal level. Um, And so I'm trying to remain optimistic that this means that the shift that we're building at the U.S. Water Alliance from this local regional level is also starting at the national level as well. And, And our partners across the water sector are with us in trying to ensure that this isn't the last investment. Because though this was a huge influx of funds, it didn't even scratch the surface of the amount of money that the water sector needs to truly be able to provide services to everyone. We rely on clean water in our homes every day. Considerable time, money, and science go into making sure it comes ready to use. In the last episode of this season of The Collective Tap, we will explore what it means to lose access to water. And we follow Taz and Devin as they try to reduce their own water usage. The Collective Tap is a project of the White River Alliance, a 501c3 organization located in Indianapolis, Indiana. We are an alliance of diverse interests and organizations that work together to steward the river and its watershed. It is made possible with generous funding from the Nina Mason Pulliam Charitable Trust. If you want to learn more, visit us at thecollectivetap.com or at thewhiteriveralliance.org. Produced in partnership with Absorb.